Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We welcome everybody. Uh, the nature and scope of the U.S.-India relationship has changed significantly over the past couple of decades. Indeed, political, economic, and strategic cooperation between the United States and India is at an all-time high. There's considerable potential to further strengthen many aspects of our relationship. For example, I'm encouraged by efforts to expand U.S.-India defense and security cooperation, specifically in the maritime sphere. As the world's two largest democracies, it is essential that Washington and Delhi stand together to uphold democratic values, principles, and norms in the Indo-Pacific, particularly as China seeks to gain greater influence in the region. India's positive engagement and support for peace and stability in Afghanistan is also another reason for optimism. Unquestionably, India has, uh, has much to contribute to the international efforts to tackle complex global challenges. And there's little doubt that the overall trajectory of U.S.-India relations is positive. And we talked a little bit about that before the meeting, and again, we thank you for being here to testify. But there remain a number of challenges as well, including our economic and trade relationship. Onerous and unreasonable localization requirements, high tariffs, limits on foreign investment, and unparalleled, unparalleled bureaucratic tape, red tape, hinder further access to the Indian market by American businesses. There are also serious concerns about the treatment of intellectual property in India. Prime Minister Modi has made repeated statements about, the undertake, about undertaking economic reforms and making India more hospitable for foreign investors. And there have been some small movements in certain sectors, such as defense. However, the rhetoric has far outpaced the reforms. Moreover, it appears that trade and investment remain principally transactional for the Indians, rather than serving as indispensable tools to establishing a genuinely free market economy. I am concerned that the robust rhetoric has created a widening expectations gap between Washington and Delhi. Of course, we must aspire as a government to achieve certain goals in any relationship, especially with India. But in the case of U.S.-India relations, the hopeful rhetoric has far exceeded actual, tangible achievements. I can think of no more poignant example than the U.S.-India Civil Nuclear Cooperation Agreement. Nearly eight years have passed since the nuclear cooperation agreement was signed, and only in recent weeks have we been assured that contracts for the U.S. companies are imminent. Of course, we need to see what those contracts actually look like as well. For these reasons, U.S.-India relations would be better served by a more sober and pragmatic approach that could go a long way towards laying the groundwork for genuine progress in areas that would be mutually beneficial to both the United States and India. I look forward to hearing the witness, and I want to thank you for being here. I look forward to our distinguished ranking member and his opening comments, and thank you for being here, sir. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I welcome our, uh, both panels of our witnesses today, and thank you for uh, calling this hearing. It couldn't be more timely with Prime Minister Modi's visit scheduled uh, uh, early next month. It's important that uh, this committee uh, have this hearing. Uh, to look at the uh, deepening ties between India and the United States. It's been a relationship that's only grown stronger in recent years. Uh, we look at the two-year anniversary of the Modi administration, which has, I think, deepened the ties between the United States and India. And as you pointed out, uh, the United States and India are the two largest democracies in the world. So 
there's an expectation that that uh, relationship would get stronger, and it has. Uh, today, I hope we'll have a chance to explore our defense relationship. Uh, clearly, we have a lot in common. Uh, the uh, South China Seas and China's activities um, on maritime security uh, dictate that the United States and India uh, work a closer defense cooperative ar arrangement to make sure that we maintain uh, the, uh, the commerce of the seas and the openness of the uh, shipping lanes. We also need to deal with counterterrorism. Uh, we still recall the tragic uh, terrorist episode in Mumbai in, in 2008. Three of my constituents from Maryland were killed during that attack, uh, and that's still fresh in the minds of the people of India. So I think strengthening our ties on counterterrorism, working towards a further cooperation in South Asia is an important part of the growing uh, relationship between our two countries. You mentioned the nuclear agreements on civil nuclear uh, cooperation, uh, India, of course, which has a nuclear power, uh, and also nuclear weapons is a country that we need to uh, make sure that we have a close tie on the nuclear front, on uh, nuclear safety and uh, nuclear proliferation. So I'd be interested uh, from, from, from hearing from our witness the status of the agreements between our countries that could improve logistical cooperation on the defense front. Uh, on other areas in climate, we've seen uh, major progress made. And, uh, we applaud the relationship between President Obama and Prime Minister Ab uh, uh, Modi in the successful completion of COP21. Uh, India's uh, in the, at presence at the United Nations on the signing and would welcome uh, your assessment as to how the ratification process will be proceeding uh, in India. On the economic front, uh, we clearly have challenges. There are many uh, areas that I've heard from American companies of concerns as to the hurdles that they have in doing business in India. So we'll be interested in hearing about market access. Uh, on the human rights front, uh, Mr. Chairman, I, as you know, I uh, will always raise human rights issues. There's no country that can't improve their human rights records, including the United States and India. Uh, India, according to the State Department's human rights list of concerns related to women's rights, uh, minority uh, communities, religious freedom, press freedom, and the freedom of civil societies. Similar concerns have been raised by many of our civil society groups, including Human Rights Watch. The expectations are higher. Uh, from a country with the capable, with capable democracy where institutions are well positioned and have the responsibility and uh, ability to correct shortcomings and overextensions of authority. India's vibrant civil society and press are extraordinary assets that deserve expansion, not limitation, as they also play vital roles in safeguarding fundamental freedoms. Prime Minister Modi is right when he says that diversity is our pride and it's our strength. As friends, we should stand ready to support India's efforts towards this vision. In closing, we must set realistic expectations but steadily improve, remove obstacles to our deep, deeper cooperation and partnership. This will come over time as trust is built and our respective systems get used to working with each other. 
as we look forward to the future, supporting Congress for a strong and growing partnership with India will help to frame the policy debate. I look forward again, Mr. Chairman, to hearing from our witnesses. Well, thank you, and I, I would not expect to have an opening statement from you without human rights being mentioned. So uh, thank you for that. I would say that uh, while this committee has been unanimously supportive of a, an end modern slavery movement that the United States would lead, uh, India also has the largest number of slaves. I'm not talking about people working for a dollar a day. I'm talking about people who are enslaved than any country in the world. So I very much appreciate you bringing that up. And with that, um, our first witness is the Honorable Nisha Biswal, Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs. We thank you for being here. I know you've done this before. If you could summarize your comments uh, without uh, objection, we'll enter, we'll enter your written statement into the record. And again, we thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, for inviting me to testify today. And I will summarize my comments and enter my statement for, uh, ask that my statement be entered for the record. Thank you. Um, as you noted, this hearing, Mr. Chairman, provides us with a timely opportunity to take stock of the U.S.-India relationship. Over the past eight years, we have seen tremendous progress across every major dimension of our relationship. Indeed, the relations between our two great democracies have never been stronger, even as both sides recognize that there is much more that needs to be done. The strategic partnership between the United States and India is anchored in the premise that our two democratic, pluralistic, and secular societies share not only many of the same attributes, but also many of the same aspirations. India is Asia's fastest growing major economy and soon to be the most populous nation on earth. How it grows its economy, evolves its strategic doctrine, asserts its interests and values, and projects its growing economic, military, and political power will have important consequences not only for the 1.25 billion Indian citizens, but also for the rest of the planet. That is why the U.S.-India partnership is so significant and why I believe that this relationship will shape the future of geopolitics and economics in the 21st century. The bilateral architecture of the U.S.-India partnership reflects the investment that both countries have made in building ties between our people, our industries, our governments, and our defense establishments. Secretary Kerry stated last year that we may do more with India on a government-to-government -government basis than with virtually any other nation. Yet, for India to be strong and capable strategic partner, it must have the economic strength to back up its growing global leadership. At the same time, we must note that expanding trade between our nations will create more jobs here and offer U.S. firms greater access to one of the most important foreign markets of this century. Bilateral trade in goods and services has nearly doubled since 2009. U.S. exports to India have increased by nearly 50% over the same period, supporting more than 180,000 U.S. jobs. Despite these gains, as you noted, much still needs to be done to get two-way trade to closer to its potential. Among the steps that we have urged India to take to attract more companies uh, would be to negotiate a high standard, high quality bilateral investment treaty with the U.S. 
India's economy cannot achieve its full potential without strengthening the protection of intellectual property rights and creating a more transparent and predictable regulatory and tax regime. In the defense and security sectors, ties are critically important to securing U.S. interests in Asia and across the Indo-Pacific region. This is well respected in the words of former and current Defense Secretaries Leon Panetta and Ash Carter, who have referred to India both as the linchpin of the U.S. rebalanced Asia and as the U.S.-India defense partnership as an anchor of global security. And India now conducts more military exercises with the United States than any other country. In recent years, we have become one of India's largest defense suppliers, enabling greater interoperability between our armed forces. To that end, we've launched the Defense Technology and Trade Initiative, or DTTI, which includes working groups on jet engine technology, aircraft carrier development, and others. In addition to the security partnership, how India's energy market develops will have a profound impact beyond its borders. Our cooperation in this arena is critical to ensuring global growth is achieved in a sustainable way. Building an international consensus to combat climate change has been a top priority for President Obama and Secretary Kerry. And India's leadership, as you noted, Senator Cardin, was essential to the successful conclusion of the COP21 negotiations in Paris. Clean and renewable energy is where our cooperation can have the greatest effect. Our partnership to advance clean energy now includes cooperation on smart grids, energy storage, as well as solar biofuels and building efficiencies. And since 2009, we've helped mobilize more than $2.5 billion to develop clean energy solutions in India. We are confident that as India looks to increase its civilian nuclear capabilities, uh, that U.S.-built nuclear reactors will play a contributing role to that effort. But our partnership is also focused on strengthening the ties between our peoples and addressing the challenges that keep them from achieving their full potential. Last year in his speech in New Delhi, President Obama said our nations are strongest when we uphold the equality of all of our people. And to that end, uh, to build on those strengths, we have a range of dialogues focused on human rights, including religious freedom, trafficking in persons, as you both noted, child labor, and gender-based violence. Taken together, the progress we have made across the breadth of this relationship over previous administrations and certainly over the past eight years has ushered in a new era of relations between the United States and India, strengthening the foundations of a partnership which we believe will help ensure the peace of the Indo-Pacific region and shared prosperity across that expanse. Thank you, Senator, and uh, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here and your service to our country, and I'm going to reserve my time for interjections down the road. Senator Cardin. Well, let me just ask you directly, uh, with the Prime Minister's visit here to the United States, do you expect that there will be uh, formal agreements that will be signed in regards to security cooperations during that visit? Uh, we have already uh, strengthened our security cooperation in a number of key fronts, and certainly Secretary Carter's visit uh, earlier um, this year was, uh, was key in advancing many of those things. Um, we're looking at what additional areas we can engage in to, to deepen that cooperation. We just launched a maritime security dialogue 
Uh, we have, as I, as I noted, um, um, undertaken a great deal of uh, um, activity in terms of co-production and co-development of, of various uh, um, next generation technologies. And we're looking to see if there are additional things that we can conclude during the Prime Minister's visit. Uh, we are hopeful that uh, progress will be made on uh, some of the foundational agreements, including the logistics agreement, that that might be uh, con concluded prior to the visit. And, uh, and we're looking to see if there are other things that we can take on board. Yeah, clearly, anti-terrorism uh, is uh, going to be a huge uh, issue, fighting um, uh, forms of extremism. Yesterday, I believe, uh, an agreement was announced between Iran and India in regards to the port of Chapahar. Uh, are we concerned, uh, knowing that Iran is continuing to sponsor terrorism in that region, uh, we obviously, there's nothing that appears to be in violation of any of our agreements, but uh, how do we see India as a partner in fighting extremism and financing of terrorism? Well, it's a, a, a very important question in, in light of uh, the Indian Prime Minister's recent visit and announcements, and I'm going to answer it in two points. One is, um, with respect to the announcement on the Chabahar port, um, we have been uh, very clear with the Indians on what we believe are um, the continuing restrictions on activities with respect to uh, Iran and we have done, they've been very responsive and receptive to our briefings to explain where we believe the lines are. Uh, and we have to examine the details of the Chabahar announcement to, uh, to see uh, where it falls in that place. But with respect to India's relationship with Iran, uh, which I do believe is primarily uh, focused on economic and energy um, issues, uh, we do recognize that from the Indian perspective uh, that Iran represents for India a gateway into Afghanistan and Central Asia for India to be able to contribute to the economic development of Afghanistan, um, it needs access that it does not readily have um, across its land boundaries, and that India is seeking to deepen its energy relationships with the Central Asian uh, countries and, and are, are looking for routes that would facilitate that. That said, we have been very clear with the Indians on what our security concerns have been, and, uh, and we'll continue to engage them on those issues. Well, I just hope that we're getting uh, candid discussions. So again, uh, economic issues, we understand. But if it is also being used as a way to increase their capacity to support terrorism, that's Iran, um, we, we need to know that we have a reliable partner in India in fighting terrorism. And I assume those candid discussions are taking place? They are, absolutely, Senator. And you'll keep our committee informed Indeed. of those discussions. So let me uh, change focus to the human rights. The chairman mentioned that the uh, trafficking issues. I've mentioned the human rights issues. Um, the, uh, India is on the State Department's um, Tier 2 as a source, destination, and transit country for men, women, and children. Uh, we know that they have an uh, inconsistent record on the manner in which they treat women and girls. So tell us the progress being made in regards to dealing with modern-day slavery and our relationship with India. Thank you, Senator. Um, our uh, 
um, representative on uh, global trafficking issues, Susan Coppage, was actually just in India um, uh, a few weeks ago. And I will say that this is the first time that uh, we have been able to engage and uh, with the Indians and travel to India um, at, at that level on these issues in the past, uh, irrespective of whether it was uh, um, this administration or previous administrations in India, they have not been um, um, willing to allow our folks to travel on these issues. I think it marks a progress in the relationship and in India's own commitment to work towards uh, ending or combating trafficking. Um, I believe Ambassador Coppage had very useful and constructive discussions particularly on how we can strengthen the cooperation of our law enforcement bodies, as well as working on um, um, civil society's role to address uh, trafficking in persons. It's an issue that I think is a challenge across uh, the South and Central Asia region and one that I know that the Secretary uh, prioritizes. Just, in let me just engagement. point out, the 2015 TIP report made specific recommendations the 2016 outlook indicates that they have not successfully implemented many of the recommendations, including they have not increased prosecution and convictions for trafficking in persons crimes, especially bonded labor, and India has failed to fully fund and staff its anti-human trafficking police units. Uh, the fast courts continue to lack adequate resources and funding to train prosecutors, judges, and court personnel. Uh, th this is a democratic ally, friend. Are we being candid with them in regards to what is expected in regards to trafficking? Absolutely, we are being candid. Ultimately, it is an issue of Indian uh, capacity uh, to address the very the, large and the complex network. The recommendations in our trafficking reports take that into consideration. Uh, let me just, uh, just I, I could also bring up the, the their anti-conversion uh, laws that are uh, problematic in regards to how they're dealing with religious freedom. Uh, and I guess my question to you, other than uh, releasing the department's human rights report, how does the state engage with India on the issues that are raised as human rights concerns? So we have a number of different um, um, opportunities across our uh, relationship. One, we have specific dialogues that focus on human rights, trafficking, religious freedom issues, including our global issues forum at the undersecretary level, where we go through in uh, great detail where we have areas of concern. But we also, in all of our interactions, raise issues, particularly if we have specific instances or cases of concern um, to seek uh, uh, Indian uh, responses and actions. Um, we also, in the way that we do our diplomacy, make clear the values that we stand for in ensuring that we are engaging all communities and ethnicities uh, and religions in India, that we are uh, engaging with civil society as a core component of the relationship. Um, and we look to partner, not only at the national level, but also at the state level, where many of these challenges manifest uh, to see what kinds of solutions. For example, in the, in the specific instance of uh, combating um, uh, gender-based violence, uh, we know that this is about how local law enforcement uh, 
implements and acts on an existing uh, legal stricture. And so we're trying to deepen our, our cooperation with Indian law enforcement agencies on community policing and creating greater awareness and uh, um, best practices in terms of how to combat gender-based violence. So across all of these areas, uh, we do try to engage constructively both at the national and at the state level. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I, I gave up my time on the front end, so I'm just going to ask my first question. The just to follow on with our ranking members, uh, great questions. India has 12 to 14 million slaves. There are 27 million slaves in the world. H how does a country like this have 12 to 14 million slaves in the year 2016? How does that happen? Well, Senator, it's a... a a huge challenge in this massive country to deal with the issues of um, uniform capacity and capability to address um, the rights of every individual citizen. We do think that there's a lot more that can and should be done to address issues of, of, of trafficking and of but, but how could labor. you have that many slaves i mean seriously do they have just zero prosecution prosecution abilities zero law enforcement i mean how could this happen it's uh on that scale it's pretty incredible mr chairman i would say that there is increasing awareness and commitment uh at the national level to try to deal with these and we have seen them break up uh, trafficking rings um, when uh, in, in, in places like Chennai. Um, but it's, there's a long way to go and there is a economic reality that is going to incentivize, unfortunately, this kind of criminal network from existing. Um, and it will be increasingly, I believe, incumbent upon India to advance the rule of law across all aspects of its society to ensure uh, that uh, these kinds of conditions don't exist and this kind of, of trafficking does not exist. We are committed to supporting those efforts and to being um, a partner in that endeavor. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, um, Madam Secretary, I, I just have two questions, one related to uh, global security and the other economic. Um, Prime Minister Modi just concluded a two-day visit uh, in Tehran. Uh, I think he met with President Rouhani. Uh, my information says they, they signed 12 agreements um, of talking anything from trade to security. You've related some uh, comments to uh, relationship with Iran and, and its growing import uh, to India. I'd like you to talk about that in perspective with uh, Pakistan and the relationship that India has with Pakistan, two nuclear powers, an aspiring nuclear power uh, in Iran. And um, can you talk, uh, how do you assess the developments of this growing uh, India-Iran relationship and how does it affect U.S. interest in the region? Thank you, Senator. We have, over the course of years, um, invested a great deal of effort in engaging India on uh, our desire to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons and the sanctions regime that has been in place for that reason. The Indians have been very uh, consistent 
partners, even when it has adversely impacted their economic interest in ensuring that they were working with us um, and in compliance of that sanctions regime. I'm sorry, but some of these 12 agreements that they just signed have to do with increased trade between the two countries, correct? So we are at the point now um, under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action where some activities that were previously uh, prohibited are, in fact, permissible. We don't have yet the details of the agreements that have been signed, and we will look to engage with our Indian counterparts to better understand the specific details and how they comport with what continuing requirements are, place, are, are in place and what restrictions are in place. With India having the, the world's third largest, and I know this is a debatable uh, measure, third largest military, and the relationship with Iran having been somewhat tenuous over the last few decades seems to be better today. But with the diversity, religious diversity, uh, demographic diversity, uh, the Pashtun issue uh, across both countries, um, give us an update on the India-Pakistan security issues today. Um, well, clearly we have long encouraged India and Pakistan to uh, engage in dialogues and to address some of the many uh, issues that continue uh, to be outstanding in that relationship. Um, we have a very important relationship with each country and we seek to advance our interests with each country. We don't see this as zero sum, but we do recognize that for India and Pakistan, um, that there are a number of outstanding issues between both uh, that would be benefited by dialogue. On the other hand, we do understand that uh, countering and combating terrorism is an important objective, not just for India, um, for Pakistan, for Afghanistan, but for the United States across that area. And so these are areas that we try to uh, support conversations across all of our bilateral relationships as well as pushing um, countries in the region to address it themselves. Um, we do believe that increasingly there is uh, recognition that no kind of terrorist organization um, will be acceptable, that you can't differentiate between good terrorists and bad terrorists. That has been a, uh, a stalwart tenet of our uh, engagement in the region, and, and we do believe that we are starting to get that recognition um, back in at least the uh, um, commitments that uh, countries in the region are making to us. Uh, we do need to see more in terms of actions in that, in that space, um, and uh, we'll continue to push on those issues. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> moving over to the economic question, um, India is a growing economy, uh, one of the fastest growing. It's the third largest, I think, now um, in, in line with the, having the third largest military. And yet the bilateral trade is really anemic between the U.S. and India. Um, we still have a net negative trade balance with them. Uh, and yet they are a large source of foreign direct investment in the U.S., one of the fastest growing, uh, I might add. The question is, is World Bank ranks, uh, and I, I am a little bit dubious of these rankings, but the World Bank uh, ranks uh, India 130th out of 189 countries that they rank in terms of ease to do business. I can relate to that in some ways. I've done business there much of my career, uh, having lived in Asia a couple of times. So um, the question I have is, and, and by the way, I'm not sure that the U.S. ranking of seven 
on that World Bank uh, ranking is merited either. I know how tough it is to do business in the U.S. today. <laughs> so having said that, <clears throat> what are we, what's the administration doing to increase trade between the two countries and influence the economic development of that region related to several things, the refugee issue being one, uh, where we have to get those economies growing again uh, when these people get to go home, and not just in Syria, but all across the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, uh, including Africa. So can you talk specifically about, this is one of the three top economies in the world, and yet trading with the top economy in the world is really anemic, and yet we have the economic development needs of the, of the third world, and I don't see India playing in that today, and I want to see, the question I have is, how can these two juggernauts economically uh, get together and, and trade better together, but also work together for the economic development of the third world? Yeah. Well, that's an excellent question, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's been an effort um, that has been one of both the most important but also most complex uh, between our two countries. Um, the Indian economy, which has for so long been very um, inward and insular, is increasingly looking to see how it can integrate and connect. And as they do that, I think that the Indian government is, is recognizing its need to open up and liberalize. It is not happening at a pace that any of us would want. Um, I think that the prime minister um, um, created very high expectations in his campaign um, about what an open, an India that is open for business would look like. In terms of the reforms that he has been able to uh, get passed through Parliament and, and implemented, uh, the pace has been slower than what many, not only in the United States, but frankly in India, would have liked to see. That said, we do believe that there has been um, um, greater ease in doing business and in attracting investment. We have seen that in terms of the increase in U.S. investment um, flows into India. Uh, we have also seen that in terms of the interest of American companies, uh, they increasingly are looking at India as one of their top destinations for where they want to put their investments, where they want to um, um, sell their products and their services. And, uh, and so it will be incumbent upon both of us to try to create the economic architecture that allows that to happen and for India to create the environment, both with respect to uh, larger legislative changes that they need to make in, in terms of the tax regime and, and others, but also in terms of the regulatory um, um, policies and how they are implemented across the board. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Madam Secretary, I've read the testimonies of the uh, private panel witness that's going to appear following your testimony, and without stealing their thunder, uh, I was struck uh, by similarities in their policy recommendations. Um, in my view, the point that resonated the loudest was uh, the U.S. interest in a strong economic relationship uh, with India, and conversely, India's interest in a similar relationship with the United States. And like those witnesses, I believe that developing that bilateral economic relationship should be elevated to one of our highest bilateral priorities uh, for the U.S. agenda. Now, we are engaged mutually in a comprehensive set of diplomatic dialogue and working groups covering a wide range of issues in the areas of economic security, climate change, and education. So this is a relationship that doesn't suffer from the lack of dialogue. Uh, but 
it unfortunately does suffer from a lack of results, uh, especially since the civilian nuclear deal was signed in 2006. So it would be my hope that with a strong push from Prime Minister Modi, and I'm pleased he's returning to the United States, that the time is right for these dialogues to translate into action. And there's no better example of the benefits to both the United States and India of a strong bilateral relationship than my home state of New Jersey. You were gracious enough to come in 2014 and uh, be part of a panel discussion there. Indian Americans start more companies than any other immigrant group in America. New Jersey leads every state in Indian American startups. Nine companies on the Fortune 500 list have Indian American CEOs. They account for about 1% of the U.S. population, but have a disproportionately influential position in American medicine, academia, corporations, and especially the high-tech sector. Now, I've talked to many U.S. companies, and they definitely want to they seek to invest in India. But they need transparent governance, a fair regulatory environment, strong legal mechanisms to protect those investments. So there's great optimism, but there's also a realization that uh, there isn't the type of progress necessary in those fields to try to capitalize on that possibility. If the Indian government can deliver on its plans for greater openness with capital flows and stronger intellectual property rights, I'm confident that our companies are ready to invest. Uh, and so the question for me with that as a background, particularly my concern uh, uh, in these different areas of the necessity for India to undertake reforms to recognize intellectual property rights, real reforms on this issue, which significantly impacts the ability of many U.S. companies to do business in India's important markets, particularly the pharmaceutical industry, which faces continuing challenges and IPR protections. So realizing that some progress has been made, why hasn't the relationship uh, realize its full economic potential? What's the administration's top priority in this regard with the Indian government? Uh, thank you, Senator. I do believe that it is a extraordinarily complex, not only economy, but government, uh, government with very robust uh, state uh, and provincial leadership that are not always on the same page or on the same mindset. And so while we have seen progress, the progress has been uneven. There are states that many of our companies would rank at the very top in terms of the ease of doing business. And then there are states that are prohibitively difficult uh, to engage in. And so there is a great deal of unevenness across the board in terms of where we have uh, success and where we have extraordinary uh, and prohibitive challenges. So you're suggesting there's a structural challenge in the way the Indian government works between the provinces and the central government? I do believe that there are structural challenges as well as I believe some of the progress that we would like to see is a national enabling environment and legal framework and where we believe that the government has not been able to pass the kind of um, um, reforms through parliament that would dramatically change uh, the, uh, the, the, the outlook in this sphere. Um, have we seen progress? I think we have. And I think as I talk to uh, our executives across the board, they would say that over the past two years that 
um, they have seen a dramatic change in the nature of the conversations and a more of a problem-solving approach to trying to address these issues, but not yet, as you have noted, the concrete outcomes that would give us uh, the, the measure of, of assurance that we're seeking that our business, our economic relationships can grow at the pace that both countries would like to see. Well, so in the areas of intellectual property rights, what is the State Department doing, the administration doing, to further not just the conversation but actions that ultimately uh, create a Indian legal framework that will recognize and guarantee intellectual property rights? Because in so many ways, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry, whether it's the high-tech industry and others, the concern of pirating and or just outright, uh, you know, uh, I'll call it uh, forfeiting intellectual property rights is a real concern. And that, that's going to be a challenge for India as well in terms of the opportunities that exist. You're exactly right, and that's, that's the approach that we have taken, which is that as India seeks to increase um, its, uh, you know, make in India, its uh, innovation economy that it seeks to create, it will need to have a stronger intellectual property regime. Now, in our trade policy forum, which is led by USTR, uh, we make this a centerpiece of our conversations, of our engagement. We also have a intellectual property um, working group, an IPR working group uh, between the U.S. and India, including uh, engaging with the private sector on their specific interests and concerns. Um, and finally, uh, there, I believe, is a growing uh, um, constituency within India to see a strengthening IPR regime. And the Indian government just recently announced um, a new IPR policy that amongst uh, the positive aspects, I would say, are that they seek to create a greater awareness and understanding in the Indian population about the need for strong intellectual property to change the nature of that conversation so that they can make a systemic change, um, a need to increase the capacity, particularly the length of time it takes to um, issue a, a patent in India because of the uh, enormous backlog. Uh, is inhibitive and prohibitive for innovation. And many Indian innovators are looking to offshore their patents because they cannot get a timely consideration. Um, so these are positive steps. But we know that there are many other areas that we uh, want to see greater progress uh, on intellectual property, not only in the pharmaceutical industry, but increasingly across the, uh, the innovation economy that both our countries mm -hmm. want to see en enabled. Well, I would just say it would be ironic that Indian entrepreneurs and inventors would offshore their patents and then would not have their patent recognized uh, successfully in, in their native country. So uh, I look forward to continuing that engagement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, uh, Secretary Biswal, for uh, this hearing today and, and your time and testimony today. Uh, I first had the visit to, in, to visit India uh, almost uh, 10 years ago now. What an incredible experience it was! Our nation's oldest democracy in the United States, the, to the world's largest, the world's lar oldest democracy in the United States, to the world's largest democracy in India. What an incredible opportunity to uh, see a, a vibrant economy, uh, the incredible energy of the people of India, 
Uh, and throughout our meetings, no matter where we were, uh, there was this, uh, always this energy about how we could work better with the United States, how we could partner more in terms of business and relationships to further uh, the already strong ties that we have. And so uh, I continue to be excited about the future of U.S.-India relations and certainly uh, look forward to working every way I can to, to further those relations. But I wanted to, to thank you personally, though, for something that you have uh, and your colleagues have helped me out at the SCA Bureau working with my office to assist a, a Christian organization called Compassion International, which is based in Colorado Springs, uh, Colorado. Uh, the situation that Compassion International has found itself in in India is deeply concerning to me, and I hope that we can find a resolution to it soon. So thank you for you and your bureau's engagement. I received a letter uh, from Compassion International talking about what is happening in India uh, to the organization, an organization that cares for some sponsors, nearly has sponsored since 1968, uh, nearly 145,000 children. Uh, this organization has been active since 1968, uh, millions of dollars going to help children, sponsor them, uh, bring them up and out of poverty to greater opportunities. But in India, Compassion has now been sued by uh, the Income Tax Commission four times. Uh, their assets have been seized. Uh, they have had employees and church pastors interrogated after hours by the Intelligence Bureau. Um, Twelve separate visa applications have been denied. Um, this situation does raise concern about religious freedom in India. According to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, USERF, in 2015, and I quote from the report, religious tolerance deteriorated and religious freedom violations increased in India. Minority communities... Uh, especially Christians, Muslims, and Sikhs, experienced numerous incidents of intimidation, harassment, and violence. Furthermore, there seems to be a real, real crackdown on religious NGOs by the Indian government in the last year. According to USERF, in April of 2015, the Ministry of Home Affairs revoked the licenses of nearly 9,000 charitable organizations. The ministry stated that the revocations were for non-compliance with legal reporting requirements, but numerous religious and non-religious NGOs claimed that they were in retaliation for highlighting the government's poor record on human trafficking, labor conditions, religious freedom, and other human rights, environmental, and food issues. Among the affected organizations were Christian NGOs that received money from foreign co-religionists to build or fund schools, orphanages, and churches, and human rights activists, uh, activists and their funders. And I believe uh, this year even the um, the employees of the Bureau who were going to help write the USERF were denied their visa by India. So uh, is, is this an accurate position in your view or statement in view of what's happening to NGOs being retaliated against by the government in India or local governments? Um, I do believe that um, one of the concerns that we have raised with our counterparts in India consistently has been about the regulatory and or legal framework that that uh, seeks to um, constrain the activities of civil society organizations, whether they be uh, in Indian or uh, organizations, international organizations, American organizations, and to try to work through exactly what the concerns are on the Indian side, but to ensure that uh, one of the pillars of our relationship, which is a people-to-people -people relationship founded in the role of, um, of civil society organizations in both countries, uh, that that is um, allowed uh, and enabled to flourish. And so this is a continuing area of concern. Now, with respect to U.S. SURF, I will, I will note that um, we uh, have engaged consistently to try to uh, enable members of that committee to um, travel to India 
I am not aware in um, the tenure of not only my term in, in, in this position, but in, in government, um, that India has ever provided visas to that committee uh, in successive administrations dating back, uh, you know, since the foundation of that, of that committee. Uh, we have tried to impress upon um, our counterparts that this organization with a, con a congressional mandate um, is undertaking very important work and that a dialogue a constructive dialogue between the government of India and the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom would benefit all sides, um, and we will continue to press upon them. And, and thank you. And so, I mean, I, what you're saying basically is that there, it's not just Compassion International. There are other Christian organizations, uh, or otherwise, that are now in the same situation that Compassion International finds itself in. Um, I think that there are uh, probably an uneven um, experience of civil society organizations. We are looking into specifically uh, the issues that you have raised with Compassion International to see if there is um, some way that we can uh, work through those concerns and try to um, facilitate uh, their activities in India. And I look forward to working with you and with them to try to get to the bottom of that. Yeah, and thank you. And I mean, is there, in terms of the, the government of India's response to our actions, in, in Delhi are from our embassy, what exactly have they done to this point, perhaps to alleviate the concerns that you have expressed? Well, we have engaged on behalf of both specific concerns when India, uh, when U.S. civil society organizations raise them with us, um, as well as the broad-based uh, um, issues of um, on the one hand, understanding that in our country as well as uh, any other, that there is a legal uh, frame um, under which civil society operates and to ensure that that, that frame is one, well understood, uh, and two, that it is transparently and evenly applied. Uh, one of the conversations that we have had with our counterparts is that an uneven um, application of the law can itself represent a bias uh, that can constrain the activity um, of civil society and constrain um, the speech of, uh, of private uh, um, entities. So we do try to work through those issues. I will say it is inherently uh, going to be um, uh, dependent on the very robust uh, constituencies within India that push on these issues uh, in the public debate, in the media, um, and in the interactions between civil society and members of government and members of parliament that you're going to see um, the greatest uh, uh, possibility for um, uh, progress. But we are doing our part in our conversations, both publicly and privately, uh, to encourage progress in this area as well. And again, I want to thank you for your office's actions. I, it would be a shame to see uh, this organization stop its uh, great work because of this um, uh, activity uh, taking place right now and, and uh, this uh, policy in India. So thank you for that. And perhaps we could have further discussions later. I'm out of time now about the Look sure. East policy and the partnership that we have right now in uh, South China Sea with India and, and their uh, views of uh, freedom of navigation operations, but uh, perhaps at a later time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Senator Kang. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Secretary Biswell. It's good to be back together with you. I, I want to follow up on the, the line of questioning for Senator Gardner, because I want to make sure I understood some of your answers and underline this issue. Sure. The Indian government denied visas for American researchers in March who were going as part of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. These were researchers who work to prepare the, the annual report that is done about religious freedom around the world. 
Um, that's a most unusual action, isn't it? Um, we certainly would have encouraged them to allow uh, uh, these uh, researchers to travel because we believe it would foster greater understanding and support and dialogue between uh, U.S. Uh, surf and uh, Indian authorities and would enable them to um, have a more comprehensive uh, report and understanding. I, I, I was not exactly clear about your testimony. I just was distracted for a second. In the past, have similar researchers been denied visas in India, or have they been allowed in? It is my recollection that we have never been able to gain entry or gain visas for them to travel to India in successive Indian administrations, that that has been a longstanding policy um, of the Indian government that we have not uh, been able to uh, change. And what has been the general policy with respect to other nations willingness to grant visas to researchers from the U.S. Uh, Commission? I suspect that it is, uh, it is a mixed and uneven record, but I, I can't tell you definitively um, if, uh, if what it is across the board. The 2015 report um, of the Commission was, was pretty hard on India, and in fact uh, on India's, I think in their conclusion, sort of declining uh, religious tolerance, or maybe they would say it the reverse, uh, increased instances of sectarian tension uh, and, and disturbances, as, as I recall. Um, I, I believe that's correct. Um, and from my constituents, I have a very, very vibrant um, Indian American community in Virginia, as you know, uh, including a pretty active Sikh community, and the Sikh community in particular has expressed a lot of concerns about Indian governmental response, for example, to desecration of Sikh uh, religious texts and sites uh, that have been conducted in certain parts of the country and what they view as an inadequate government response to that. Um, have, has your office been following those concerns as well? We have been, and we have uh, also engaged with the Sikh community here in the United States. I met with the uh, Indian ambassador of the United States in recent months to talk about this, and you know, shared my very significant concern about it. Uh, I think, um, you know, I think the message was delivered. It's, you know, I think the, the explanation was, you know, during election seasons, there can sometimes be things happen, and then after the election season, tensions abate a little bit. But I wasn't completely satisfied with that answer. And again, I consider myself a, a strong supporter of this bilateral relationship. I also understand that there, uh, over these issues of religious tolerance, there have been in India recently a number of artists and others who have been refusing cultural prizes to try to make a kind of a public statement of concern about the state of religious tolerance and liberty in India. Am I, am I correct in that? Um, there has been a fairly vigorous and vociferous debate within India uh, with respect to issues of religious uh, freedoms and religious tolerance. Well, th this is an issue that I think is a really important one for us to, to stay up on, and uh, you know we're, we're going to have the opportunity, which I really look forward to, to have the Prime Minister in Washington soon. Um, but it, it, it is India's status as that secular democracy, as you described it, is a really important one, but you can only have that status if people don't feel like they're going to be preferred or punished for how they choose to worship. I guess if, if, if I may comment, Senator, my own um, perspective on this issue Please. is that um, there is no more robust voice than the voice of the Indian people 
that is taking up these issues with increasing vigor and public debate. It is on the headlines of Indian newspapers that you are seeing a very active engagement on this issue. Um, I think these are issues and these are values that we hold very dear, that we um, bring into the conversation, but we try to do it in as constructive a way possible to not take away from the fact that these are issues that Indians must grapple with and get right for their own country, for their own democracy, for their own society, and that we in the United States um, have experiences to share, lessons to share, best practices to share, but we seek to do that in a way that respects and honors the fact that this democracy has a very vibrant and very vocal civil society and media and political uh, um, party system that is also trying to get this right. And, and that certainly has been my experience as I visited that that is a heartening aspect of, of uh, India today is that vibrant civil society that's not shy at all about raising these issues. Um, I also, I, just to conclude, moving to defense cooperation, an aspect of, your, of the testimony of all the witnesses, I am very heartened by by the ongoing work uh, that's being done in that area. Senator King and I visited India in October 2014 and went to the, uh, the uh, Magazon docks in Mumbai to see the Indian shipbuilding industry and encouraged uh, the uh, defense ministry to send a delegation here. And I think that has happened maybe last summer. And then there's ongoing work in these various defense spaces. Secretary Carter has been really good about it. Um, and I even noticed, this is interesting, being on the Armed Services Committee, every uh, DOD witness we now have always talks about the Indo-Asia Pacific. When I started on the committee, they always talked about the Asia Pacific. Now they always talk about the Indo-Asia Pacific, and I think it's good that as we think about that part of the world, even we're changing our vocabulary to reflect the fact that the uh, relationship with India is of growing strategic importance. I believe that it is, and I just you know want to encourage that we continue in that way. And with that, Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. I, I didn't uh, use my time on the front end, and I wanted to ask a couple of questions. This is my second one. I, do you think, I get the feeling just in listening to your testimony and some of the concerns that people on both sides uh, have had, that we're not as brutally honest about our relationship with India as we should be, and it benefits neither them nor us. Uh, it just seems that there are huge country and we see promise there, we don't see much action, but we're just not that honest uh, in our discussions, brutally honest, about some of the issues uh, that have been raised here, whether it's human rights, whether it's slavery, whether it's really a lack of our, the intellectual property issues that have been brought up. The civil nuke deal, I mean, I'm sorry, it never materialized into anything that mattered yet. A long time ago, one of the first votes I made coming in the Senate, I've been here nine years and four or five months. So. Do we, do we just sort of walk around these issues with India and hit them on the edges, but uh, have fear about fully addressing the issues head on with them? Uh, I would actually take exception with that characterization, Mr. Chairman, because I do believe that we have a very robust and very honest and very transparent discourse. We are a very transparent democracy, and the concerns that we have are communicated uh, very clearly and at very senior levels to 
the Indian government. India is also an extraordinarily transparent democracy in that the issues that we raise are not only issues that we are raising, but they are grappling with these issues in the context of their own democracy and debate. Um, and that what I believe the administration um, um, seeks to do in these engagements is to find the places where our engagement on these issues can have uh, the kind of results and actions in a constructive way that we would like to see. That's not to say that we don't engage in a candid and brutally honest conversation. Uh, I think our human rights report, our religious freedom report, our trafficking in persons report lays bare in very clear and detailed terms the concerns that we have and the assessments that we make. And those are conveyed and communicated very uh, clearly to the government of India and to the Indian people at large. That said, we do have a desire to advance this relationship in a way that I think is going to be increasingly important to both our countries, to both our peoples, and to both our economies. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Um, oftentimes I hear the role of India's future discussed as a sort of counterbalance to China. I think it should be much more than that. Uh, obviously there's an element of that, but I think India in and of itself is a nation with incredible potential and there's incredible potential in our bilateral relationship. So my questions about military exchanges are not towards the desire to use viewing India as some sort of surrogate counterbalance to China and the region, but rather uh, one that um, that recognizes what I think is their potential and ultimately their rightful role in South Asia and across the world. So how do you see the future of U.S.-India uh, military-to-military relations progressing in, in, the, in the near future? I know there's uh, been concern in the past within India that the United States has either proven to be unreliable and or uh, a meddling a nation that if you sell arms and they want to go around and tell them what to do internally. So how, how has that progressed and how do you view the future of our military to military engagements? Thank you, Senator. I do believe that this is an area of uh, extraordinary progress and ambition uh, in both countries. Uh, we have seen the growth in our defense ties that has dramatically um, uh, uh, scaled up over the past decade. Uh, our defense trade, which has gone from something in the neighborhood of 250 to 300 million uh, per year, is now um, over 14 billion. Uh, our exercises have grown tremendously and in complexity. We are just concluding our air-to-air -air combat exercises, red flag, um, but also we're doing exercises not only bilaterally but including increasingly trilaterally. Malabar is now done with U.S., India, and Japan. Uh, India is a, participate, a participant in RIMPAC. Um, we are also, I believe, on the cusp of an era where we could well see uh, the U.S. and India doing joint or coordinated operations across the Indo-Pacific. Um, and we believe that India has an important role to play as a net security provider and a guarantor of a, a uh, open uh, and rules-based maritime order across the Indo-Pacific. You discussed for a moment the trilateral uh, cooperation and you mentioned specifically Japan. It's my understanding that that relationship is ripe, ripe for growing. What is the, how is that moving forward? How, how are those two countries interacting now, both economically and militarily? 
we have certainly seen a dramatic uh, increase and scale up on US, uh, on sorry on India Japan ties um, on the economic side uh, Japan has uh, um, uh, announced a major hundred billion dollar investment in the Mumbai Delhi corridor uh, but I think uh, is increasingly looking to uh, prioritize India as an investment destination for uh, Japanese investment um, but we're also seeing uh, increased cooperation between India and Japan on the defense side. Um, uh, I noted the um, discussions, the, the, the inclusion of Japan in the Malabar exercises, not only when um, it is happening um, in, in the, in the um, uh, Indian Ocean region, but in every, in every locale. Um, and I do believe that we will um, also look to enhance our cooperation on other areas such as uh, uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief and other platforms where the United States, India, and Japan can really advance uh, um, a joint effort and a shared effort. It's also clear that groups like ISIS and other radical Islamic groups see India as a prime potential target for fomenting uh, the rise of, of uh, surrogate groups and affiliates within India. How would you assess the U.S.-Indian counter-terrorism uh, and intelligence sharing uh, relationship? And is it one that's growing along the lines of our strategic partnership and our military partnership? It certainly is. We have a very robust cooperation with India on counterterrorism that includes intelligence and information sharing, uh, includes uh, um, the sharing of tools and technologies and best practices so that we can uh, enhance the capabilities to combat terrorism and violent extremism. Um, we have a homeland security dialogue and a joint counterterrorism working group that is increasingly looking at both regional and global terrorist networks. Uh, India has been a strong partner in, uh, in, in combating terrorism financing uh, that increasingly uh, we have concerns about the reach of terrorist financing networks across uh, South and Central Asia and, and India's been a strong partner in that. And we believe that the, the potential for greater cooperation is, is there as we deepen our ties on intelligence and on security. We are also deepening our ties um, in, in the internal security matters as well. And my last question, you know, in, in Indian history, there's uh, multiple examples of very prominent and successful women that have been leaders in their government, and yet we also see these reports about the treatment of women at the societal level, particularly in some local jurisdictions where crimes committed against women, ranging from assault to, to uh, um, all-out harassment, is often ignored by local officials. Is it your sense that at the national level that its, that its leaders understand that they're facing a significant global a challenge, a global perception challenge, and a reality challenge on the ground and the treatment and status of women in their society. You know, when we had the the rape, I believe four years ago now, of Nirbaya um, in on a bus in New Delhi, and and the brutal murder, um, um, it created not only the shock and outrage in the United States and around the world, but it actually, uh, the biggest and most vocal reaction was in India itself. And as a result of that, there has been, I believe, a tremendous um, awareness of the challenges 
that women's security um, in India and, 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 and that law enforcement face in advancing that. Uh, a great deal of sensitivity now in the Indian media and civil society to not push that under the rug, but to actually put it out into the open, um, but also some progress. The Verma Commission, uh, which was uh, headed by a former Chief Justice of the Indian Supreme Court, um, came out with a number of critical rec recommendations that are many of which are now in place and acted and implemented. Um, and New Delhi has uh, created a new women's rights bill to specifically address issues of women's security and in curbing gender-based violence. So this is a very important issue within India, but it is, a, it, is, it is going to take a great deal of focus and effort, not just at the national level, but to drill it all the way down to the local level to change dramatically and evenly across the board uh, the prospects of, of women and girls in India to live in a secure um, uh, environment that protects their rights. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Thank you. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin. Thank you for convening this important hearing on uh, the future of relations uh, between the United States and the world's most populous uh, democracy. Uh, Delaware is home to a, a large, uh, industrious, engaged, and very entrepreneurial uh, Indian-American community that is constantly uh, working with me to seek ways to strengthen uh, bilateral ties. And last year's uh, renewal of the U.S.-India Defense Framework Agreement is, I hope, the sign of a new and positive era in U.S.-India relations um, that we can build on uh, to work together to address security threats in Asia and to build stronger and more mutually beneficial economic relationships. Um, I will simply say a number of issues raised by other members of this committee around intellectual property, the importance of a bit, uh, the central role that India played in COP21, the importance of renewable energy uh, are all uh, topics um, I agree with many of the issues raised. Um, I also just want to commend uh, the chairman for his relentless focus on um, the suffering of those who are enslaved around the world and the ranking member for his repeatedly raising trafficking issues. Uh, I think these remain um, an important area of work for us in our relationship with India to make sure that we um, address our shared values, whether religious tolerance uh, and inclusion uh, or addressing the fundamental human rights violations um, against women and those who are enslaved in India. Now, let me ask uh, two perhaps more parochial questions. Um, I represent uh, a state uh, that has a county that grows more poultry than any other county in America, and in uh, June of 2015, India lost a case in the WTO um, that said that uh, India's ban on U.S. poultry was inconsistent with global norms. India's requested 18 months uh, to take down uh, these restrictions and to open up a market that could be $300 million of potential for the U.S. Uh, poultry export um, community, which um, is rooted in more than 30 of our 50 states. Can you give me any update? Um, and I'll just share my concern that other countries that have also lost similar cases in the WTO, like China, uh, have ultimately taken years. Um, the USTR just announced another WTO suit against China because they neglected to ever follow through uh, on meeting their WTO commitments. How do you see the path forward for uh, US and India when it comes to agricultural exports, and in particular, poultry? Uh, Senator, I will have to get back to you on the specifics of the poultry case, but uh, in terms of the agricultural exports writ large, I do believe that um, we have a agricultural dialogue which seeks to advance market access. Um, it has been challenging, uh, and, and we do believe that 
um, as India looks to reform its economy, um, that one of the major areas uh, uh, to focus on is the agricultural sector where I believe we can have a robust partnership that can, one, help India prevent the post-harvest losses that really uh, account for almost 40% of India's agricultural produce that doesn't ever make it to the market. Um, but for us to be able to do that, we do need to ensure that our companies and our producers have the kind of access that uh, would enable us to really deepen that partnership. So this is something that I know that Secretary Vilsack is very committed to. Thank you. One of the things I've worked hard uh, in the African context with our poultry uh, companies to try and emphasize and highlight is that this should be a two-way trade where there is investment in technology transfer and in developing uh, modern and world-class uh, poultry industry for the people of India as well as, as an export opportunity for the United States. Uh, DuPont, uh, company headquartered in my home state of Delaware, has um, a strong public-private uh, partnership with the Uttar Pradesh Department of Agriculture. Uh, they've created rice farming schools at the local level in order to provide farmers with modern scientific and practical expertise to improve yields and productivity and profitability, uh, which would be another step towards creating a sustainable uh, agricultural future. It's been very successful. There's been more than a quarter million farmers in 11,000 villages that have participated, and they hope to keep expanding um, this program how can the State Department work uh, with companies like DuPont in the United States that's been a great partner in Africa and the Indian government, central government and state governments, um, to expand development programs that actually can improve rural communities and develop sustained positive economic ties? I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity. You know, in 2010, when President Obama made his first trip um, as president to India, uh, one of the things that was uh, launched and announced was a um, partnership for a second green revolution, which really focuses on how the United States and India working together can not only benefit Indian farmers, but also can partner to uh, advance technologies and best practices in Africa and other places. And in that, uh, there's an important opportunity for private sector, which brings a lot of the tools and technology and best practices, uh, both U.S. private sector and Indian private sector, to be able to work on that. We're already seeing that in some of the things that we're doing in terms of, uh, of agricultural extension programs and the technologies that can create uh, more efficiency in the extension programs, but also in areas of, of um, water in agriculture and irrigation um, and many other areas. So I would look forward to seeing how there are opportunities for, for DuPont uh, to, to collaborate in that. Well, I appreciate your long service at USAID as well as state and uh, it's my hope that the Global Food Security Act uh, will be soon enacted by uh, both houses of Congress and the President. Um, it's the sort of uh, partnership, the Feed the Future program is the sort of robust public-private partnership that I think uh, has been a hallmark of this administration. Let me ask uh, a last question, if I might. Uh, I'll just renew the comments uh, that several senators have made. Senator Cardin first raised them about uh, the Prime Minister's uh, visit to Iran and the, the potential challenges of a strengthened um, India-Iran um, alliance. What obstacles stand in the way of increasing U.S.-India um, security ties? And uh, what are we doing to overcome those obstacles? And to what extent do you view an opening uh, to Iran by India as an obstacle to our having a closer and sustained security relationship with India? 
Thank you, Senator. With respect to first um, the challenges in our own uh, uh, security ties, I would say that for both countries, we are um, increasingly looking to see how we can create more efficiency um, in the defense relationship. Uh, that means on the Indian side, efficiencies in their procurement processes and efficiencies in how in their regulatory environments and hopefully increasingly in Indian um, um, progress on such basic bedrock issues as the foundational agreements and we hope to have a, a logistics agreement, um, like I said, uh, in place uh, before the Prime Minister's visit, but also other, other foundational agreements. Um, and on the U.S. side, as we increase our own uh, confidence in India as a reliable partner of cutting-edge advanced technology, we're looking to see how we can uh, work through uh, the, the licensing process with greater efficiency so that we can move um, collaboration and, and opportunities for partnership on more advanced platforms and technologies. What we want to get at at the end of the day is greater interoperability that can then allow our militaries to do more in real time together as and when the need arises. Well, um, with respect to Iran, I will say that as of yet, we have not seen um, Indian engagement with Iran on a uh, military security or, or um, a CT front that would cause us concern. We watch uh, very closely. We have very candid conversations about what our concerns and red lines are. We also track very closely what their economic engagement is um, and uh, and make sure that they understand what we believe are the legal parameters and requirements that uh, we believe any engagement needs to, needs to follow. So far, we've had a very responsive reaction from the Indians on that. Well, thank you, Madam Assistant Secretary. I, I view Iran as a, a very dangerous country, and so I'm quite cautious and concerned as others uh, seek to open. And I do think the U.S.-India relationship is one that has uh, immense potential. Uh, and we need to continue to work together to find ways to realize uh, that potential. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for taking the time with us today. Um, I think this is an incredibly important hearing. I thank the Chairman for calling it, you know, the, the deepening <coughs> ties to India that has really spanned three different administrations from the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, to the Bush administration, to the Obama administration. You know, it's a wonderful counter-narrative to this mythology that exists about American global weakness, right? The Indians have had a very purposeful, long-term commitment to non-alignment, but they have made a decision over the course of the last several decades to create an alliance with the United States because they are making a long-term bet on uh, the importance of American economic, political, and military power in the globe for a long time moving forward. So I, I think this is, it's important to put their decision in the context of what other nations think about the future of America's role in the world. Um, I wanted to ask a couple of questions to follow up on uh, a line of question from Senator Rubio on our intelligence sharing. So Secretary Kerry um, and the Indian Foreign Minister signed this joint declaration on combating terrorism uh, in September of 2015. 
Um, but we know that there are some obstacles that still exist to effective intelligence sharing. Uh, one is a pretty traditional reluctance on behalf of the Indians that exist in many other countries to engage in sharing with the United States because of fears as to what happens to that, that information. Second is the fact that, as I understand it, most of um, most of the most important intelligence operations in India are done at the state level, that there's really not a national capability that exists like it does here in the United States. Can you just talk about what some of the obstacles are that we need to overcome in order to have a closer intelligence sharing relationship with the Indians? Sure, Senator. I'll, I'll um, go as far as I can go in this setting and be happy to also uh, come up and, and brief in a, uh, a private setting and, and bring um, colleagues uh, from the IC to have that lengthier conversation. I would say that India absolutely has a national level capability and structure on intelligence uh, um, that we do engage with and have a robust dialogue with um, through the IC channels, and that there's been a lot of progress in that, uh, in that arena, um, including uh, engagement at, uh, at the you know, cabinet level with the leadership of our intelligence community, um, both uh, with Director Brennan um, and with Director Clapper and their counterparts. Um, and an operational level uh, of, uh, of, of um, engagement as well. Um, that said, there is a role, I think, at, in terms of combating terrorism of um, state level uh, entities and we're looking to see where and how we can engage on that. Um, we've had very candid conversations when we believe that the security of information that has been passed has been compromised in any way and have gotten very good responses um, on that. And again, I do believe that this is an area where we are seeing uh, deepening cooperation. I'd be happy to elaborate in a different setting. I wanted to ask you about uh, the penetration of Islamic extremism in India. They've had a long history of success, frankly, in uh, rebuffing attempts by these groups to set up footholds within India. Um, and then more specifically, um, I wonder if you would talk about what we know about the Gulf investments in uh, India. There's a, a lot of reporting about some major investments being made uh, by the Saudis. Uh, by the Wahhabi clerical movement to set up a large network of schools, madrasas, universities uh, throughout India. We know um, about uh, the connection between the penetration of that ideology and its connection often to the ability of terrorist recruiters uh, to find success. There's an article in the New York Times this weekend uh, about what happened in post-war Kosovo related to the investment of the Saudis in building out um, the reach and capability of uh, the Wahhabi conservative movement there. So can you talk about um, that specific issue and then more broadly about any developing trend lines on the penetration of some of these uh, extremist groups to gain some foothold inside India? Sure. Uh, we're clearly tracking and very concerned about the reach of uh, these global networks in India and around the world, and that's a very um, focused part of our uh, conversations um, and engagement on the CT front and on the intelligence front. Um, we have had uh, 
very strong success in engaging with India on tracking uh, financial flows uh, that represent uh, areas of concern and the Indians themselves are, are doing a lot to um, track flows coming in not only um, um, from Gulf but from many other parts of the world that they think can um, um, cause concern. The challenge is always identifying what we believe is appropriate financial flows coming in from across um, and around the world versus areas of concern and, and creating um, the distinctions and, and, and the systematic framework to um, constrain one and enable the other. And that's a challenging area, I'll be quite honest, in being able to get that right. Um, um, we do believe that through our, both our treasury dialogues, which deal with the financial um, flows issue and terrorism financing concerns, and in our CT and Homeland Security dialogues, which deal with um, the, the focus of um, efforts by global networks to tie into and reach into uh, South Asia and India in particular, um, that we have very robust cooperation. India actually has demonstrated, and the Indian um, 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 Muslim community has demonstrated a great deal of resilience against such um, overtures. And uh, we have seen in India that uh, radical ideology uh, has by and large not been successful in, in taking root. My time is up, but can you answer my second question? Are we watching this trend line of Saudi and Gulf state investment uh, in, uh, inside India? Um, I'll have to take that back to give you a more specific answer on, spe on, on the areas that you're mentioning. Um, it is certainly something that, like I said, through our various uh, components with the U.S. Treasury and with our counter-ISIL task force, um, that there is a great deal of focus on uh, what some of the destination countries are and, and what could be at play. So I'll give you a more specific answer on that with, um, after consulting with some of my colleagues who track that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, before turning to Senator Markey, I reserve my time up front. and, and uh, I just have one last question, uh, and I know Senator Markey's likely to get into this, but what kind of liability issue uh, did we end up with relative to the civil nuke deal that we understand may be um, about to, to break in a very positive way? I know that's been a big problem for our companies in trying to do business with them. Where have we ended up with them in this regard? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I wanted to, to be able to be responsive to um, your concerns on um, um, the civil nuclear deal and where it stands. Uh, I do believe that the issues that bedeviled progress on a civil nuclear deal being implemented and, and having a commercial, uh, commercial deal, viable deal take place, have been issues of liability. And uh, under the previous administration, uh, there had not been uh, an ability to move forward on liability concerns. The breakthrough understanding that President Obama and Prime Minister Modi achieved last January on his Republic Day visit was with respect to these, this particular issue of liability. India has subsequently ratified the International Convention on Supplementary Compensation and has therefore confirmed and attested that its liability uh, laws will be 
in compliance with the international convention. Uh, India has also moved to establish insurance pools that can help, again, address issues of liability. Uh, we believe that the steps that India have, has taken have addressed, by and large, the key concerns that had been in place. And it is now for U.S. companies to make the commercial uh, determinations. Well, they, they, surely they gave input on the front end. So have they told you that, yes, they feel comfortable doing business in India or not? Um, I believe that it's going to be different for each company. We do believe that there are companies that are moving aggressively forward on pursuing a commercial deal and are quite close. And there are companies that um, perhaps have a different risk uh, perception and are moving a little bit more cautiously in that space. Uh, I think that those are going to be individual uh, determinations that companies are going to have to make uh, in terms of what the risk profile is that they're comfortable with. But we believe that the commitments are in place uh, and have largely addressed the concerns that we uh, had raised with them very consistently over the past decade. Thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Since 2010, the Obama administration has sought to gain Indian membership in the Nuclear Suppliers Group. If India joined the Nuclear Suppliers Group, it would be the only participating government that was not also a party to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Now, despite the lack of consensus in the Nuclear Supplier Group on Indian membership, the Obama administration has decided to forcefully press for a vote on the issue in the coming months. Uh, the purpose of the Nuclear Suppliers Group has been to encourage states to accept full-scope IAEA safeguards and to prevent the spread of sensitive technology that could be used to build nuclear weapons instead of strengthening those objectives, admitting India would undermine them. Now, unfortunately, we've repeatedly carved out exemptions for India. We did it in 1980 in the sale of uranium to them without full scope, scope safeguards. We did it in 2008 in the U.S.-India nuclear deal that did not require uh, full scope safeguards. Today, we're not only granting India exemptions from global nonproliferation rules, but we're actually proposing to include India in the body that decides on those rules. So, Secretary Biswal, the Nuclear Suppliers Group has agreed to a set of factors that must be taken into account when considering whether to accept a new member. Among those factors is that the state must be a party to the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty or an equivalent nonproliferation agreement, and that it must accept full-scope safeguards from the IAEA. In other words, Indian membership would require us either to set these factors aside or to revise them. So which of these two options, revising the rules or setting them aside, does the administration plan to pursue? Uh, thank you, Senator. Let me say that um, the President has reaffirmed that the U.S. views that India meets uh, the uh, not only the missile technology control regime, but is also that it's ready for NSG membership. Um, India, so are you going India, to re are you going to revise the rules for their membership, or 
Are you just going to set them aside? Which, uh, which, which is the administration so going to do? I do believe that as you have stipulated what the uh, requirements are, um, that India has uh, harmonized its export controls with the nuclear suppliers group. Yeah, but they're not, they're not in compliance. I, I, I understand they're not in compliance with the rules. So which are they going to do? That is, what is, what is the administration going to do? Is it going to ask for a revision of the rules or just set aside the rules for India? So I do believe that in our engagement with the NSG, we have made the case that we believe that India has uh, complied with and is, uh, is in, consistent with the requirements of the NSG um, and therefore should be considered for membership. Now, I don't so, believe so that how, requires how, us to so set aside. So you're saying that you're not exempting India from uh, the NSG membership guidelines uh, and, uh, and that they are in compliance with the guidelines? Is that the administration's perspective? Our, our position is that India is, is very much consistent with the NSG are you, guidelines. Are they, in, are they in compliance with the membership guidelines? Yeah, so I'd be happy to, to take back and, and, and um, talk to our um, uh, colleagues who negotiate on these issues to get the specific technical frame, but I do believe that it is uh, our uh, considered opinion that India has met the requirements and therefore should be considered. Well, I don't think any clear reading of the NPT or the NSG um, rules can lead to that logical conclusion, I'll be honest with you. And I guess what I would say to you, and maybe you can bring this back, that uh, it should also require some specific new nonproliferation commitments from India, such as signature of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, or agreement to halt production of fissile material before pursuing for membership in the Nuclear Suppliers Group. I think that would be a strong message. And why is that? Well, it is because since 2008, when we also gave them an exemption, uh, the country has continued to produce fissile material for its nuclear weapons program virtually unchecked. At that time, Pakistan warned us that the deal would increase the chances of a nuclear arms race. And sure enough, since that time, Pakistan has declared its intention to give control over battlefield nuclear weapons to frontline military commanders, and it has declared its intention to use nuclear weapons earlier in a conflict with India. In your view, how would granting a state-specific exception to India affect Pakistan's nuclear choices? Would it complicate efforts to get Pakistan to refrain from undertaking destabilizing actions such as deploying battlefield nuclear weapons? So I do believe we have a uh, specific and separate dialogue with both countries to address both our concerns um, and is to there an inter Is there any relationship between what we do for India in terms of exempting them from rules and regulations in terms of as a result of response from Pakistan and saying we're going to actually uh, move closer and closer to the use or the of putting their nuclear weapons in a situation where they become more likely that they're going to be used? Well, I, I do believe that um, we address the interests of both countries on their own merits, and we have very distinct and robust discussions with both countries as to what I their aspirations I, are. I do appreciate that. I just think that what you're doing is you're creating an action-reaction 
that's leading to a never-ending escalation that uh, ultimately brings these battlefield nuclear weapons closer and closer to the border of both countries. I think it's a dangerous policy. It's an unnecessary policy. Making these exemptions only infuriates Pakistan uh, and leads them to uh, further increase their own nuclear capacities. I just think it's a very dangerous long-term uh, trend, especially in view of how concerned we are about those weapons in Pakistan potentially uh, falling into the hands of non-state actors. So I would hope you would bring that message back. I just think it's very dangerous. Uh, and if I may, just uh, one other question, uh, which is on India's um, uh, renewables program. Uh, President Modi is now talking about 175,000 megawatts of renewables by the year 2022. Um, what is the United States' role in helping in a bilateral basis to encourage the full development of those 175,000 megawatts of um, renewables? Uh, thank you. You know, this is an ambitious target that Prime Minister Modi has put forward. Uh, in fact, the, the most ambitious target um, globally. Uh, we believe the biggest constraint to implementing that is going to be uh, having the right framework to attract low-cost financing that will allow them to really unleash that. And this is an area where we are working with them to see what we can do to, one, um, um, create opportunities for greater private investment in their renewable sector, but two, to share with them what are some of the tools and some of the mechanisms that they can put in place. So we have a clean technology financing forum that we've engaged in with the Indians to try to have that conversation about what the enabling environment must be. We're also working with them on different tools that can help uh, mitigate some of the risk and create greater willingness for private financing to go into that space. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Senator Cardin. I just wanted, before the Secretary leaves, I, several members have been raising the issues of change in India on human rights, whether it deals with religious tolerance or the trafficking issues, women's issues. And you repeatedly refer to the robust activities of the uh, population. And I fully understand that. But I would just point out that's another reason why we are concerned about the attack on civil society within India. They have to effectively be able to speak. And, and then lastly, it doesn't relieve us from developing and working with leaders in India that recognize that these are not Western values or but these are universal issues that India needs to make progress on. I just really want to underscore that point because we can't put everything on the people, particularly if the civil societies are under attack. Absolutely, Senator. I don't disagree with a word that you've said, and, and I in no, may, in no way mean to imply that we're not engaging on these issues ourselves. Madam Secretary, thank you for being here today and uh, for your service to our country. Uh, we're going to leave uh, questions open until the close of business right. Thursday, if you would... Uh, attempt to act, uh, answer them fairly promptly. We'd appreciate it. Again, thank you for being here today, and uh, we look forward to the visit in a few weeks, and hopefully it's going to be very productive. But thank you, and we're going to move to the second panel. And Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much. Second panel as they're making their way to the, uh, to the table. The first witness 
is Mr. Sodnan Hume, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We thank him for sharing his wisdom with us today. The second witness will be Dr. Alyssa Ayers, Senior Fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia Council on Foreign Relations. Mr. Hume, if you would, if you'd go first. Um, again, thank you for sitting through the testimony you just heard. And uh, our second panels always have a little less attendance. For that, we apologize. We, we also uh, know that many times the second panels are the most interesting. So uh, again, thank you both for being here. And if you'd begin, we'd appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman and Mr. Ranking Member and members of the committee. Uh, my name is Sadanand Dume. I'm a uh, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. It's a real honor to be here. Uh, this is a topic that is particularly interesting to me, not just because it's my intellectual interest, but because I grew up in India, and I think it's a testimony not only to the relationship, um, but to the opportunities afforded by the United States uh, to immigrants from all over uh, that I'm here today. So thank you again. Uh, I'm going to use my uh, limited time to just make four broad points, uh, the greater details in my written testimony, of course. But I think that with the impending visit of the Prime Minister Modi, which will be his fourth visit to the United States in two years and his second uh, bilateral visit since he took office, uh, just to keep in mind the big picture, and of course I'd be happy to take sort of questions on more detailed issues during the Q&A. Uh, the first big point is that the US and India are enjoying arguably the best period of their relationship. Trade has quintupled to $107 billion over, the, over a little over the, a decade. The defense relationship has gone from essentially zero to $14 billion worth of US defense sales. The military exercises between the two countries are not only greater than before, but also more complex in terms of what they are achieving and what they are setting out to do, and in terms of involving other partners such as Japan. So all this is, that's the first point. The second is that, uh, as we saw during the uh, questions from the members, that this is really a relationship that stands out for having been driven by a bipartisan consensus. And I think that when you look at where the US and India were during much of the Cold War, if you look at where the US and India were in 1998, uh, when India tested its nuclear weapons, and look at the dramatic progress that we've seen since then, uh, it's fair to say that no single party can claim credit for that. Uh, this is something that both parties have worked towards, and this is something that administrations have successively built upon, but also Congress, including many of you, have been instrumental in taking forward. The third major point is that this is something that others have raised as well, uh, is that for the relationship to be sustained, when we look out ahead, when we look into the future, uh, there needs to be a much stronger economic basis. I think that the progress has been particularly dramatic in terms of coming to a broadly shared understanding of the threats and opportunities that face both our democracies as we look at the world particularly with the rise of China as a potential hegemon in Asia, and also the turmoil in the broader Middle East and the Islamic world. But where the relationship continues to lag is in terms of trade and economics, 
though even though the trade relationship is at an all-time high for, for in U.S.-India terms, it is, uh, it is still one-sixth of the relationship compared to the U.S. and China, for instance. And finally, I'd say that, you know, just in terms of uh, one word of caution going ahead, is that I think that because the relationship has generally done quite well, uh, we tend to take it for granted. I think that certainly happens over here, but it certainly happens in New Delhi also. And that both countries should be, should recognize the fact that because they are democracies, it helps the relationship become stronger, but also because they are democracies and that politicians in both countries are have to be responsive to voter concerns and constituency concerns. Uh, both countries need to be a little bit careful about doing things that unnecessarily are seen as a poke in the eye. I think you raised some of the several economic issues and several other issues during the Q&A. But I also wanted to thank you, Senator Corker, for being cognizant of, of how the F-16 sales issue to Pakistan had played in India and played out negatively for the U.S.-India relationship. And I think going forward, both these sets of uh, concerns are important to keep in mind. Uh, and with that, I'll wrap up my testimony. I'd be happy to take questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ayers. Thank you very much, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee. Thank you for the invitation to appear before you on U.S. relations with India. I shared in advance with the committee uh, a copy of the recent Council on Foreign Relations Independent Task Force report, for which I served as project director. It addresses many of the issues that you wish to explore, and I respectfully request that the report be submitted for the record. On progress, the subject of this hearing, every aspect of the U.S.-India relationship has changed over the past 15 years. The civil nuclear agreement bridged a 30-year divide. Economic ties are no longer thin. Defense trade has increased from nothing to more than $14 billion in the past decade, and as you've heard, joint exercises are now a regular occurrence. Progress does not mean, however, that we are free from disagreements. Since the hearing focuses on progress and managing expectations, I'll offer a few recommendations focused on government-to-government -government cooperation. Think joint venture, not alliance. Many Americans see India, the world's largest democracy, a fast-growing economy, and a nation of great diversity, and see a future along the pattern of an alliance. India does not seek alliances, seeing them as constraints on its freedom. Our task force recommended an alternate framework, the model of a joint venture in the business sense rather than a not-quite alliance. This model provides conceptual space to increase cooperation without assuming support on all matters, as one would expect from an alliance. Economics. India's economic growth rate has bounced back and now is at an estimated 7.6%, making it the fastest-growing major economy in the world. Last year, India became the seventh largest economy at market exchange rates, bypassing Canada, Italy, and Brazil. One of the task force's findings was that if India can maintain its current growth rate, let alone attain sustained double digits, it has the potential over the next 20 to 30 years to follow China on the path to becoming a $10 trillion economy. But U.S.-India trade, as you've heard, remains well below its potential, a little more than one-tenth of U.S.-China trade in goods. India can still do more to make its economy more open. Our economic ties face differences, including over worker mobility issues and intellectual property rights. The task force recommended that we elevate support for India's economic growth and its reform process to the highest bilateral priority, committing to ambitious targets for bilateral economic ties along with steps to get there. 
securing Indian membership in economic institutions focused on transparency and openness would be a good start, beginning with APEC and looking as well at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and the International Energy Agency. Democracy and Human Rights. India and the United States have much in common with democracy, as we've heard, but have important what I would call tactical differences in approach. Indian foreign policy for decades has upheld the principle of non-intervention. India sees issues of democracy and rights as matters of domestic sovereignty. In the bilateral discussion with India and the United States, a similar concern over tactics exists. The United States, as we know, approaches its support for advancing democracy and human rights around the world through both private diplomacy as well as through public reports. The Indian government sees these reports as an intrusion upon domestic sovereignty. I would note here as well that while India continues to struggle with rights and discrimination issues, including on the basis of religion, gender, and caste, its active civil society, press, and judiciary serve as constant domestic oversight mechanisms. We will likely find opportunity with India to work on democracy and rights in third countries through technical training on democracy, as our task force recommended. On U.S. bilateral concerns about rights issues within India, while our annual public reporting obligations will continue, no one should be surprised to see the Indian government take no cognizance, and that is a quote, as the Ministry of External Affairs said last year. Where we can craft an agenda of mutual interest, on the other hand, the conversation can go much farther. A note on defense, the geostrategic case for stronger defense ties with India is well known. A stronger, more capable India represents a bulwark of democracy in a volatile region and a model across Asia capable of ensuring that no single country dominates the region. India's military capabilities increasingly make it a first responder for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, as demonstrated with the Nepal earthquake and the Yemen evacuations last year. India is also a major donor to Afghanistan, providing humanitarian assistance, building infrastructure, training civilians and military officers on Indian soil. As the task force observed, defense ties have progressed well, but still have much room to grow. The task force recommended building further on security cooperation while expanding across the entire spectrum. Homeland security and counterterrorism cooperation should receive added emphasis. One quick final note, preparing the United States for working with India. Familiarity with India should be an economic preparedness issue for our own country, but our higher education metrics do not reflect this. Nearly twice as many U.S. students head to Costa Rica than opt to study abroad in India. Total enrollments in all Indian languages combined account for less than one quarter those of Korean, only 14% of Russian, 9.5% of Arabic, and just 5% of Chinese. The Higher Education Act, which I realize is not part of this committee, but the Higher Education Act provides greater resources for East Asia, Latin America, Russia and Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa than it does for South Asia. So we ought to bring these to a more appropriate level. In my written testimony, I've provided a bulleted list of recommendations for U.S. policy that draw upon and amplify the above. Thank you very much, and I look forward to questions. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you both. I'm going to ask your help in trying to understand how the United States can strengthen its ties with India as it relates to our relationship with Pakistan. Because quite frankly, I don't quite understand uh, the full impact of that uh, relationship. Uh, clearly, the United States made a decision several decades ago to have a more strategic relationship with Pakistan. It became uh, extremely controversial during Bangladesh independence. I'm well aware of the history here. 
if we had a hearing on Pakistan, I can assure you it would be much more uh, critical on questioning than a hearing on India. Uh, we uh, have many issues with what Pakistan does, but we have a strategic partnership that's critically important to our counterterrorism activities. As a result, there are economic issues between our two countries, including military issues, that advance U.S. interests. So how do we handle Pakistan in our relationship with India? Because it seems to me it's almost a subject we don't talk about. And it's, to me, somewhat remarkable because in Maryland, we have a large Pakistani-American community and a large Indian-American community. And quite frankly, they're much friendlier than the country's representatives are. So how would you recommend the United States handle its relationship with Pakistan as it relates to India? I'll take a stab at that one. You've actually asked one of the most challenging questions for dealing with U.S. policy towards South Asia. Um, and that's a question that I do worry about. I think that Pakistan in the past several years has missed a number of opportunities to allow itself to better its ties with India and to allow itself to, to open its economy further to some of the opportunities that its strategic location affords it. By that, I would uh, focus on some of the economic connectivity issues. You've probably heard before that South Asia, as the World Bank has said, is one of the least economically integrated regions of the world. India, in I believe 1996, uh, granted Pakistan what uh, the WTO calls most favored nation status. Now, Pakistan went through a process around 2012 of looking to reciprocate that status to India, which potentially could have made uh, a major trade opening for both countries. Their trade, which is very limited, goes through third countries like the UAE, uh, and there's potential there to have the, uh, the private sector play a leading role in, in sort of that, the thin end of the wedge in creating a more exchange and opening ties between them. Now, that reciprocal status never made it through in Pakistan, unfortunately, so you still see this very limited relationship and, and a, uh, uh, limits to which the civil society... I understand that Pakistan has issues. Yes. I, I would take it from India's yes. perspective. What should we be asking from India in regards to how do we handle Pakistan in our relationship with India? Uh, well, I think we should be asking Pakistan to do more on, A, the trade opening, and B, the counterterrorism questions. And this is an issue that I'm certain comes up over well, and over again. Well, what should we be asking India to do? Well, we are asking them to do a lot, I mean, it seems. They have uh, serious concerns. The Mumbai attackers trial still has not gone forward. You just saw... Well, I understand. I understand the things that have not happened. Yes. Uh, in, in regards to, to other countries affecting the counterterrorism. Yes. I guess um, what I'm trying to do is focus. I, I, look, as I said, we had Pakistan here. There's a lot of, my book would be three times uh, bigger as far as questions to ask. Uh, there's, not a, there's not a lack of uh, major concerns we have in regards to our relationship with Pakistan. Yes. We're going to have an opportunity to have the prime minister in our country. How do we advance the regional security and how do we handle what India can do in regards to the Pakistan relationship. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I think it is my understanding that we continue to encourage both countries to try to keep that dialogue open. And you have seen where there have been hiccups in the course of the past year, uh, but the Indian government does come back and try to keep that channel open. You saw the prime minister stop in Lahore to meet with Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif on Christmas Day on his birthday. Shortly after that, you saw a terrorist attack take place across 
the border in Patancote. So, I mean, I, I think that conversation with India about ensuring that they do have an open channel and that they are working to try to have an ongoing dialogue with the government of Pakistan uh, is what, it, you know, in, it lets the government of India know that this is of deep interest to the United States and to U.S. members of Congress. I think the challenge here is finding a way to press Pakistan so these terrorist attacks don't disrail the process, because that is the other part of the pattern that we continually see. I'd like to take a stab. I mean, it's a extremely difficult question. Extremely difficult question. I'd like to take a stab at that and use a historical an analogy. Um, one of the places where I think the U.S. was extremely successful is Southeast Asia. So if you look at Southeast Asia before the late 1960s, you had many of the countries in the region squabbling at each other's throats. And then the U.S. emerged and by helping cobble together ASEAN, really underwrote a period, a long period of prosperity and peace in the region. So the question here, if you look at South Asia, is economic integration, as Dr. Ayers suggested. But I think more fundamentally, to, for, to impress upon Pakistan that terrorism cannot be used as an equalizer. Uh, this has been the single sorest point. I think that between uh, the US and India, Pakistan only emerges as a problem uh, when certain red lines are crossed. I think that most serious policymakers in India recognize that the United States is a superpower. It has to have relations with many countries, including difficult countries like Pakistan. And that the US has wrestled in many ways in that relationship with Pakistan to sort of keep something going in, prag in a pragmatic way while recognizing that there are security concerns, uh, including Pakistan's sponsorship of terrorism against US troops uh, in Afghanistan. But when the US is seen as helping Pakistan in ways that directly hurt India's security, I mean things like advanced, uh, advanced weapons sales, which are of doubtful value in targeting terrorists, but are of immense military value in targeting another country, uh, such as the F-16 issue, I think that becomes very hard for the Indian leadership to then sell to their people and say, look, the United States is our most important friend. This is the most important strategic relationship for us. The United States is helping the rise of India. So I think that those are the kinds of things to avoid. But by and large, uh, in terms of maintaining a relationship, maintaining parallel relationships, um, that's simply a reality that has been in the past. And let, let me try one more time on a, on a different subject. Let's take nuclear, uh, use of nuclear weapons. Uh, Senator Markey made a very interesting observation, which is absolutely accurate. We've seen a proliferation uh, in recent years. So certainly, it's, there's been more indication on the Pakistani side that it may be okay to use the nuclear weapons in a regional conflict. Uh, that's you know, obviously unacceptable. What can we do in our relationship with India to try to bring back the proliferation and use of nuclear weapons in that region? So on, on that issue, I, I would argue that Pakistani doctrine cannot be influenced by the U.S.-India relationship. Pakistani doctrine, or the fact that they're trying to move towards tactical nuclear weapons, has to be influenced by the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. 
So the questions to be asked are, why do Pakistani military commanders or why does the Pakistani military leadership feel that putting nuclear weapons in the hands of military commanders, which I think is widely recognized as very dangerous, uh, is a wise move as opposed to an extremely unwise move. And that's something that uh, really goes down to how they think of nuclear weapons and how they view nuclear weapons as, a, as, an, as an equalizer. And it's obviously a serious concern, but I think the, the, the concern is in the wrong place. If so we're saying you, that what you're both saying is that Pakistan should not at all worry about India. No, it should, but it should it's have. Like that's what you're saying. I mean, I, look, I, as I said before, and I'm, I'm going to give up uh, because I'm really trying to get how we use our relationship with India to deal with some of these problems. We know we have a, a challenge with Pakistan, and you said it fairly well. We, the United States needs to have relations with countries that sometimes we disagree with in order to advance our our causes. And uh, I, I always raise, as the chairman knows, human rights, and we deal with countries that have horrible human rights records. And we have to have relations, I understand that. But we have a unique opportunity in the next two weeks to advance regional security. And clearly, Pakistan is going to be in the discussions. And I was hoping to get some idea as to how to use our relationship with India to advance that cause. Maybe it's not possible. So I thank you both for your testimony. Thank you. Uh, what is the security posture of India relative to Pakistan? We know that Pakistan, you know, at least half of their military budget and more is oriented towards uh, India, but what is India's posture relative to Pakistan? So I think in many ways this sort of gets to the heart of, you know, what the disagreements hinge on. Now when India looks at its military budgeting, it is budgeting for essentially two fronts. It has, it's facing China and it's facing Pakistan. When Pakistan looks at the, India, the Indian defense budget, it only sees itself. So from a US perspective, we would like India to be spending more on defense and continue to build out its Navy as it is doing. From a Pakistani perspective, whatever India puts into defense, is viewed by Pakistan with alarm. I think that as long as there is evidence that India is not showing aggression towards Pakistan, is not making territorial claims, is not trying to uh, change the borders, I think that the US should reassure Pakistan that India is essentially a status quo power in that region. It does not seek any territory or to redraw the maps in that part of the world. And that is important because it is in fact in the US interest for India to be spending more on defense, uh, which it has been doing. And so, the, so, to, so, so, so to answer your question, uh, the, the way it works is that much of Indian spending, which is in fact, like if you look at the naval spending and if you look at uh, um, the nuclear deterrent, for instance, that is keeping in mind the very dramatic rise of China, particularly over the last 25 years. And India, as you know, has had a war with China in 1962. So the question is, how do you, tell, how do you explain to Pakistan that India's defense capability in and of itself cannot be viewed as a threat to Pakistan? Sure. 
I would just add to that on the nuclear question. India has a, a, a declared no first use doctrine uh, for its nuclear weapons. You don't see a no first use doctrine with Pakistan, and you do see the development of these tactical nuclear weapons. So to me, those are very different postures. One is a, a defensive only, no first use. The other is looking to uh, have these very dangerous weapons utilized in a way that could be even more dangerous. And they're roughly right now at parity as it relates to the numbers of nuclear warheads. Is, is that correct? Pakistan is slightly more, I believe. And, but very slightly more, right? Uh, a lot of fissile material, but only slightly more in the way of warheads. Is there a perceived uh, within the country's uh, race to continue to, to outdo each other? What, what is the psychology of the two countries relative to nuclear armaments right now? I would say they're very different. I think what the way India has historically viewed nuclear weapons is in two ways. The first is to kind of be a member of the club of great powers, so to speak. It's almost been a status issue. Uh, the second is to have a minimal capability, particularly in case of another war with China, but to have a sort of second, have a, the minimal capability to defend itself. Beyond that, India has not uh, been particularly aggressive in terms of its nuclear buildup. Out of the countries that have acknowledged nuclear weapons programs, India has the smallest number of warheads. And so it is not aggressive, it is essentially uh, defensive. I think that in the case of Pakistan, uh, the nuclear weapons play a more active role, not just in terms of the recent thing we've seen in a few years of moving toward tactical nuclear weapons, but also being used as an umbrella under which uh, terrorism uh, can be uh, used against India. And in fact, that's, I think, one of the concerns that uh, we should have more broadly with nuclear non-proliferation in the world, not just worrying about the weapons themselves being used, but worrying about when these weapons are in the hands of countries that also happen to host a plethora of Islamist terrorist groups, how it affects the use of terrorism. Ms. Harris, you have anything to add to that? I, I actually agree with that statement. Yeah. I, I do want to correct one thing, and I, I'm probably shooting myself in the foot by saying this. I, my, my position on the F-16s uh, really had nothing to do with how it would be perceived in India. It was, it was solely about what Pakistan was doing, not doing, relative to the Akani network and the fact that it's been total duplicity on their part relative to working with us. Um, the fact is they are undermining. They're the number one by not... Uh, not really going against the Akani network in a proper manner, nor the Taliban. Um, they are, in essence, aiding, uh, first of all, the greatest threat to U.S. men and women in uniform in Afghanistan, but also destabilizing the government. So that was the reason that we took the position we did on the F-16s. Let's move to something a little different economically. India ranks 130 out of 189 uh, in the World Bank's Doing Business report. and. You know, while I said in earlier comments I don't think we're as honest as we should be about the relationship, I'll also say that you know, having attended a World Economic Forum there uh, years ago and seeing the incredible um, capital formation and entrepreneurial capacity and just uh, the business community there is really phenomenal. It is. It's very impressive. Um, at the same time, uh, it just you look at the way the country is governed, uh, the bureaucracy is just stifling. Uh, 
Uh, we obviously complain about it here, as we should be, but uh, there it is incredible. What, uh, what is your sense of their own ability? I mean, it's big, you know, Modi came in with great fanfare and everyone thought this was gonna be a, a new day. It hasn't really worked out that way. What are the possibilities from your perspective uh, in changing the business climate itself in India, which benefits us uh, over time? I'll, I'll try that one first. Um, we have a difference of opinion, I think, on this. I, I think that you have seen over the course of the last two years of the Modi government, a very intensive emphasis on uh, ease of doing business. You saw their number did move up in that World Bank ranking. I would anticipate that it would move up even further a few notches when the next one comes out in the fall. Um, the Modi government has been able to do more than I think we generally acknowledge. They were able to get Parliament to pass an amendment to the insurance law that lifted the FDI cap on insurance. This was something that the previous Indian government could not accomplish in two terms, so in a decade. So that was a big deal. In defense, they have lifted the FDI cap from 26 to 49 percent with the possibility of 100 percent foreign investment on a case-by-case -case basis. Another big deal considering the interest that we both, uh, both countries have in developing the defense technology industry cooperation. Uh, they've lifted investment caps on a number of lower profile kinds of industries, ones that nobody is really paying attention to, but will have a, an impact, like in railways. Um, they've done this for courier services. You, you could go through, there's a long list. The other thing that they've done is place a high priority on infrastructure issues, whether that's uh, uh, cleaning up India, building toilets, building more roads, uh, modernizing the railway system, uh, looking at high-speed bullet trains. Uh, so, so you do see an emphasis on the building ports, I should have mentioned, an emphasis on all the building blocks that will lead to much higher economic growth once these things are in place. Uh, I think that's an extremely important question. And, you know, in, in many ways, you know, like India is, it's, is a, it's recovering from socialism and that recovery process has not, being, has not been as swift um, as we would like to see. Uh, now, it's certainly true that the Modi government really has placed a lot of emphasis on improving the ease of doing business. It's also true that Modi has sort of turned himself into a kind of chief pitchman for India. He travels the world, including the United States. He goes and meets with CEOs directly. He asks for investment. But, um, Two quick points. The first is that this is a very... Since you brought that up, you're actually feeding into my second question. You can answer them both at once. Why do they have... I mean, so you have him, you're right, traveling around the world trying to attract investment, and yet they have investment caps, yeah. which is very self-defeating. I mean, so you're going around the world, and, and you have all kinds of um, limitations on investment. So... Why would someone who we know knows better, who is traveling the world seeking investment, uh, why are they continuing to have policies in their country that limit that investment? So I think a lot of these are, are simply legacy issues, and it's a question of moving and in which direction they're moving. So for instance, defense would be a good example. There would have been 0%, then they moved to 26. Now they've moved to 49. I believe they should have moved to at least 51. That'll be the next step. Uh, a lot of it is just the nature of how things move. It's like the Titanic. It moves really slowly. You should just be happy that it's not sinking. Uh, and so, 
so Modi has been very good in terms of trying to attract investment. Uh, foreign investment in India has increased in increasingly. It's overtaken China as the largest, uh, it's the largest uh, destination for inward greenfield investment. But what I have been writing about and have been somewhat disappointed by has been the speed and pace of economic reform. So on the one hand, there is definitely a more business-friendly environment but on the other hand, there still remains, in my view, a certain amount of ambivalence about how much of a role the market is going to play in the economy. I'll give you just one quick example to illustrate this. 70% of India's banking sector is run by state-owned banks. So how can you have a functioning market economy when 70% of your banking sector is run by state-owned banks, which essentially is making decisions not for commercial reasons, but at least partly for political reasons. And so when you compare the Modi administration to his predecessor, he's certainly been an improvement in terms of economic policy, no question. But when you compare the Modi administration with the expectations that were raised by that big victory in 2014, uh, then I feel there's still a ways to go. Did you want to comment on any of the... If I could just add to that, I mean, that there is uh, uh, the process of uh, carrying out reform in a democracy adds additional elements. Uh, one of the areas that the government has hoped to reform has been labor laws. India has some very restrictive labor laws that actually constrain growth of companies. So, for example, there's a, an Industrial Disputes Act that uh, makes it very difficult to to fire people, even for a non-profit... Uh, a company that's not making a profit if the company is larger than 100 people. So what you see then is it, a lot of small companies that don't grow larger because of this Industrial Disputes Act. In any case, the, the current government tried to begin reforming labor laws and 150 million people, members of many different unions that came together to organize a national strike, went on strike to protest this effort. So it, it's not that the government isn't trying to carry out reforms, is that there is a pushback. There's a lot of different voices in the Indian democracy. And so now this labor law reform has been pushed down to individual states to try to carry out reforms in the best way they can at the state level. Well, y'all have been invaluable to us. We appreciate you sharing um, your knowledge with us. As you heard uh, on the last panel, we're going to leave. Uh, I know a lot of members disappear after the first panel. It's sort of a, a standard around here, but uh, many of them will wish to ask you questions on the record, and they'll, we'll have a questions until the close of business Thursday. And, and uh, if you would, if you could answer them fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it. We thank you for your interest in helping us in this manner. Thank you for the time to prepare. Um, and we look forward to seeing you again. And with that, uh, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. See you later.